is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. On this episode, I will be talking with my friend Greg Bishop, and together we will wrestle with the very thorny subject of UFOs, and both of us try to address the challenges of how to make sense out of this this elusive subject. Now, Greg is somewhat of an expert. He has written a handful of books, including the very important book, Project Beta. And that book is subtitled, The Story of Paul Benowitz, National Security and the Creation of a Modern UFO Myth. This book was published in 2005, and it has come to define the foggy netherworld of how elements of our government have co-opted the UFO to their own ends. He has also written It Defies Language, essays on UFOs and other weirdness, as well as Wake Up Down There, and these books are both collections of his essays on UFOs and other weirdness. Our conversation runs a little bit long, so no need to say any more here in the intro. Uh, Greg does a much better job of speaking for himself than I do in trying to introduce him. This was a fun conversation and was recorded on Wednesday, December 23rd, 2019. Please enjoy. Greg, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. I will talk to you anytime, Mike, because we've known each other for so long. I mean, when did you when did we talk first and do an interview on your show like 10 years ago or something ridiculous like that? It was a decade ago, and we also met, I recall, in person and hung out. You know where we met? We met at um, we met at Stanton Friedman's desk, his table, at the UFO conference in Laughlin, Nevada. Ah, okay. Yeah, that makes sense, and I think I remember it. Yeah, I've been to see, you and I've been to so many of those things. I remember when you went and uh, you came a few months ago and stayed at my house, and we had a really nice time. Talked talked quite a bit and i forgot to have you sign the um reframing the debate poster that i signed I've had, it i'm trying to you did i did oh yeah well you pulled it out we unrolled it i signed it oh god thanks okay oh I signed thank it. god because i was like mike was here for like four days he didn't sign it. okay good. yeah so i signed it and that was a year ago that was a year and a few months ago so yeah so. i've got almost everybody on there was like i lack i think three on there so i gotta i, I take it with me when i'm going to see people that are <laughs> we're in the book. Hey, let's fill people in. The book is a book by Robbie Graham. It's called UFOs Reframing the Debate, and it's a collection of essays that he played the editor, and he wrote the foreword. And actually, the foreword was Diana, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, Diana walsh Pasolka wrote the foreword, and Robbie wrote the intro. And then, yeah, there were 14 of us in that book that uh, and Red Robbie Pill and Junkie. I and a couple of Yeah, Red Pill. That was his first big published thing, I believe. Yeah, the cover. He did the cover, too. Yeah, he did the cover. Do you know what that cover is based on? And not too many people know this. I think I told you this when you were visiting. Oh, what is it? It's based because he had the basic design of the two hands framing the UFO that was kind of out of register with the colors. Yep. And he said, I can't think of what to put around it. I don't know. You know, he was trying to get a really good idea of what his design was. And it's it's based around Botticelli's Annunciation. If you look at that, that uh, painting. There are two hands, Mary and um, Gabriel, Angel. It's when I, it's when uh, I, I'm, I'm an art history major. That's what, that's my only degree. When Gabriel came to tell Mary she was pregnant with Jesus. Anyway, so she's you know understandably freaked out. So you know they're very it's very theatrical. But the hands 
in the middle. Her hand is up and kind of like an oh my god, and his hand is like calm down. There's something there's something cool I got to tell you, and all that the negative space in between those two hands is the center of all the converging um, one point perspective because it's an Italian Renaissance yep, painting. Yep. So what it is is what's going on in that negative space in between the two hands is the most important part of the painting, not their reactions, not the room, not the little branch he has in his hand. The most important part of that painting is that message that's passing between them in that negative space. And so I talked to um, Red Pill about that, and we were talking about, you know, his hands. And instead of the negative space, there's a UFO in there. And I thought, yeah, you know what? There's a parallel here. It's an unspeakable thing that we talk around that we can't really define. If we try to define it, it slips out. And all. And if you look at the painting, there's concentric circles coming out of it just by, you know, Mary's dress and um, other things in the painting that looks like a bullseye. And the bullseye is the center is that negative space. So he put crosswords like around it with little words. You can see them very vaguely, very lightly. It's square because it's like a crossword puzzle or whatever those like. What are they? What are they? They're not called. They're called find a word. They're word search things. Yeah. Yeah. Word search thing. It looks like a word search thing, but there's like, you know, um, terms from the book in there. Disclosure. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And it's and so those little things function almost as a bullseye. Except there's not a negative space. The negative space is the UFO. Anyway, we talked about this for two hours over a phone call. And I didn't tell him how to do it. I just said, look at that painting. That's a really, <laughs> it's composed very well. It's a, it's a graphic designer's dream. See what you can do with that. And he got inspired to finish it off by, by from that painting, from the Annunciation by, by Sandro Botticelli. Wonderful. And then, so this is exactly what happens every time we talk, is that, like I, I have full confidence we are going to start one place and conversations are going to loop back around, and who knows where we'll end up. The the this will not fall into the category of formal interview. I, I never do those on my show. I tell people right up front, it's like this is not a formal interview. If there's something you want to say, even if it has to do with you know, we got into food and aircraft design and all kinds of stuff on my show. It's not just UFOs and paranormal. I want to know what the person's interested in. When I was at your house, the first thing you did is you took me into this long hallway. It was kind of dark and kind of, you know, mysterious looking. And and one wall of that hallway was floor to ceiling bookshelves. And this is like a pretty long hallway. Yeah, it's probably about 12, 15 feet, maybe a little longer. Probably a little longer than that, I bet. Yeah. So and then we got kind of sidetracked and sucked into the UFO section of your bookshelf there. You know, Nick Redfern uh, put this thing up on Facebook recently. He basically said, I do not have a library. I just have a bookshelf, you know, but you have a library. Yes, there is a library at the house. You know, probably three quarters of the books are mine, a quarter or a third or whatever. My wife's and we both have books in the garage. So eventually, you know, I want to get a big, big room and just have, as you know, it's everybody's fantasy, have a library. Absolutely. You know, with, you know, because right now I just have it organized um, books about California history, uh, books about uh, these are all fiction. Uh, this shelf is all um, occult books. And then this shelf is all conspiracies. And this shelf is all um, UFOs, which is like three of the eight foot long shelves are completely UFO books. <laughs> so to give us the highlights of what's in there. I mean, I there was just a bunch of autographed John Keel books and 
two autographed John Keel books, which I had him autograph himself when I met him. Um, one of the books is Jay Du, which was his first book. It was about him traveling through the Middle East and uh, the East, the Far East and the Middle East and finding out what um, he was very interested in magicians and fakirs and stuff like that. So that was his like adventure travel log book. And that must have been what, in the 50s or? Yeah, it was like the mid mid 50s, I think. Maybe No, maybe early 50s, actually, because it was so when that's he was the same time out of the army. Huh? Oh, that was we're talking over each other, which I, I apologize. I'm awful. That's so. OK. That, that's, that's how radio works. <laughs> I mean, that was in Kerouac's on the road kind of. Yeah, that it's yeah, it's John Keel's on the road, I think. And the other John Keel I have is um, the Fickle Finger of Fate, which is a softcore porno novel by John Keel. <laughs> I, I that was always in his bio that that he you know augmented his his income a little bit through over the years. I showed that to him, and he said, "Oh my God, I haven't seen one. I don't even have one of these." He said, and I said, "What well, can you sign it?" So he wrote. Um, to Greg Bishop, my favorite editor and collector of high-class literature. Right on. <laughs> so I treasure that. There's, I got one of the shelves, most of the shelf is signed books because, you know, if I got to have a book and I, I can possibly get it signed by whoever. So, you know, there are signed books by Bud Hopkins and, and Whitley and, and, and Stan Friedman and, you know, everybody you can think of, Dolan, Rich Dolan. Me. You? Yes. A couple of them, yeah. Of course. Good, yeah. So that was, I mean, I could get, that was, I was getting sort of sucked into that. That was like one of those things. I, I have a, yeah. I had a really big bookshelf and I had a lot of comic books and art books and stuff. And it, I was a horrible place to have a party at my cabin when I lived out West because all my books, because people would just get kind of like, whoa, oh, they'd get kind of sidetracked and everyone would be kind of staring at these like old comic <laughs> books and stuff. So. Yeah, well, there's, you know, the UFO encyclopedia, both uh, both volumes, the first one when it came out when it was in three parts and then the second edition which was alphabetical. Um, but I was doing excluded middle at the time and I got review copies, which is like, you know, who could have thunk of the luck of getting review copies of the UFO encyclopedia by Jerome Clark, which everybody, if you're serious about the UFO subject, whether you agree with Jerome Clark or not, I mean, he tried to be very, he's, it's a monumental undertaking he had. And he's very even-handed about it, and it's it's. I've used those encyclopedias multiple, multiple, multiple times just to get, you know, either to get information or to find out where I can find the information. Absolutely. So those are amazing, and the um, God, I've got a I've got a facsimile edition, folio edition, like um, a foot high, uh, of the John D book. The John D's um, oh. true and faithful relation of what passed between for many years between John D and some spirits, which uh, has um, all of his you know, experience. And it's all in like this weird arcane Latin. So I actually have, you know, <laughs> I have a, a, a version of it that's translated. But, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, John D's um, account of uh, starting a conversation with uh, a, a being that he that he and Edward Kelly channeled. And during the Elizabethan period in England, he was the court astrologer and also an alchemist and a magician and all that other stuff. But basically, at that point, that was a learned person. That was a man of science, even though it wasn't called science yet. Um, but, uh, you know, and science at that point or whatever you want to call it included all types of knowledge of things. Uh, natural science had, you know, had a, a, a normal things that we think of as science, but then also mystical things or things we think of as mystical now. So that's why that's very interesting to me. 
a question I always have now is what's so so the Venn diagram, you know, the two circles, you know, they kind of overlap yeah. and they so we have one study, the you know, the study of the occult or mm -hmm. one category, one and then the other one would be UFOs. What's in the where do they overlap? What's in that little thing where they overlap? Um uh, your personal interest. Okay. Um I'm just asking because it comes up a lot where the, the, this occult stuff shows up all the time in this lore. And I don't know what to make of it. I don't have a good answer to that question. It's because I think the occult thing is another way of looking at reality that's kind of been lost. And in some ways that's bad. In other ways it's not. But it is a method at getting, of getting at truths that I don't think can be gotten at by data or, 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 or the, the main, main tools of science, which are very important in this field, but I think the intuitive, the subjective, the, the mythological, the numinous, all those things, if you talk to somebody that's had a UFO experience, all that stuff's, stuff's happened to them. And that's not data. That Well, I guess it could be if you're a sociologist, but it's not a, like a, a raw row of data. It's a personal experience. And those things, I think, I think it's coming back now. But uh, for the longest time, people have ignored how people are affected, how their lives are changed, all those things. And I think the occult side speaks to that because a lot to me, occultism, especially Western occultism, is an attempt to understand the world, your place in it, how you interact with it, and what you bring to that world. It's basically one of the oldest forms of self-help, I think. And, and then... And then what you just said that the the UFO is, I'm gonna I'm gonna like like talking about the UFO subject has got like so many categories I'm just gonna go right to the category oh, that yeah. interests me which would be the the contact experience so yes exactly this is you you're you're dealing with something absolutely subjective you're dealing with something that is steeped in this kind of um, Doctor John Mack used the term reified metaphor. Like where a metaphor mm. is made real. So we have a, a real experience, seemingly, yeah. let's say, which is told in metaphoric terms, which is presented yes. with metaphoric symbolism. And yeah, then because you can't you I don't think you can approach it directly. It just it just it's so ineffable that you have to use metaphor and comparison and Everything that your culture and your subconscious and your upbringing, your, your education brings to you, that's the tools you have to describe something that's indescribable. And those are exactly the things that, a, let's say, a scientist, you know, with a capital S, would, mm -hmm. would kind of be wary of. And rightly so, because it's not science. Yes, science is of it's, its very static definition. There's a definition for science. I, I don't know what it is. I mean, I know you have to have a hypothesis and have repeatable experiments and all that stuff. But, yeah, the, the, these experiences, these numinous experiences, which is a word I love, uh, mm -hmm. don't adhere to the scientific method. Yeah, and Whitley just did a couple of interviews with uh, two uh, scientists, one Ed Bell Bruno, who I've met, and another one who you just did an interview with, Deep, what was his name, the young fellow? Deep, Deep Prasad. Yes. I thought he was kind of a, a snotty young kid. And I thought, well, who does he think he is? You know, tell And as I looked at what he was saying, because he's kind of a, he's kind of a, um, he's a creature of, the, of uh, social media and of Twitter, at least, you know, in the way that somebody that's 24 years old is. And 
um, you know, a lot of my friends were, I, like I said, was like, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He doesn't even know the history of this. And after a while, I was thinking, he's basically doing what we all did, but he's doing it at like this incredibly accelerated pace. So when people would complain, it's like uh, about uh, his, his, you know, kind of, I don't not really bull in a China shop, but just um, his discovery of something that we had known, my friends and I had known for quite a while. You know, instead of saying, you know, well, you don't know anything, my, my attitude became, give him a minute. He's still learning. So with that in mind, I got in contact with him and I said, you want to do a, a show? And he finally agreed. And it was a wonderful, I mean, I had a great time. He had just announced like the day before on Twitter, before we recorded, he just announced his experience in his, his room with some strange thing, some kind of apparent contact type of experience. Broad daylight, 9.30 in the morning. He was perfectly awake when it happened. Yes, remarkable. Yeah, Whitley talked to talked to him recently too. Yes, just within the last week, I think. Actually, just this week's yeah. show, yeah. Yeah, and the fact that he would he would stick his neck out to admit that. I think he's just young and he's like, well, whatever. I don't care what people think, which is great. Because if he was like, you know, 40, 50 years old, an established scientist, I don't think we ever heard of it. Whatever would have heard of it. Yeah. But, he, you know, he's younger. He wanted to talk about it. He wants to find out. He's got, a, you know, this fire to, 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 get a, to get an understanding and an answer. And that, to me, was very exciting. And, and, and it was fun to talk to him about it because um, part of what I did in the show was um, partially trying to let him know, one, I think you're, you know, you're, you're learning great stuff. But I also wanted to talk to him about stuff that interests me and you and people we know, like this side of it, the numinous side of it and the. And during the course of the interview, I said, you know, you should really talk to Whitley. I mean, this sounds like the stuff, a lot of stuff that he talks about and he's interested in. And I think they hit it off because of that. If if Deep hadn't said anything on Twitter about this, I don't think this this part of it would have opened up. And he needs to I think he needs to acknowledge that part of it, um, the, the, this weird part of it, not just the the uh, dry scientific part of it. And he's and he's totally aware of that. And I, I think that's wonderful. And as time goes forward. Um, I think he's going to make a big difference, and uh, I'm, I'm glad that that Whitley and other people that are not from the scientific community are that he's listening to them and able to talk to them because that's going to that melding of the left and right brain and of the of the scientific and the the science of the humanities, as Jeff Kripal says, you know, trying to get those to talk to each other about this subject. That's where that's where you know some movement forward or at least some understanding is going to come from. Absolutely. Hey, we need to take our very first break. For free Dreamlanders, you are going to hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen with my guest, Greg Bishop, and we are talking about UFOs and how they are, let's say, say how they are understood and how they are perceived in our culture through the mainstream through the people who've had the experience, as well as through the sciences. You interviewed Whitley, the host of this network, twice in the last month. Two months, yeah. I think it was one. It turned out just barely made it twice in two months, yeah. Okay, well, it's okay. And you also read his book, uh, A New World. Now, I consider you really well-versed in, like, the lore of the classic contactee from years past. How does Whitley's message in a new world 
compare to what was once said, to like what was once the message? Mm, to me, there's not a comparison because their message was basically world peace, um, but it was an outward looking message, I guess I would say. Like everybody, you know, look what's going on around us. The, the, the world's going to blow itself up. We have to, uh, there was a spiritual message in there too, but it was mostly a anti, anti-nuclear, anti, almost anti-military, anti-authoritarian, anti-status um, quo type message. I mean, they're, the contactees to me were almost like, you know, flying saucer beatniks. Their message was, we're here to make you realize some things you don't realize, that the world is falling apart. And if you don't do something about it soon, it's going to fall apart worse. And I think that was the main um, raison d'etre of the contact team movement was just, it was a very anti-war, um, very uh, peace-oriented type of message. Yeah. But, the, but Whitley's book, to me, um, New World, has that message updated to now, but, you know, at least the, the part about the world's falling apart, you know, we got to do something about it. But his idea to me is that this change comes from within. It comes individually. And that um, if you're willing to open yourself up to uh, what he calls the visitors, or at least their message, that this, th this, this, um, idea of self self and planetary transformation comes from a very deep personal experience. Um, and that's what I think the difference is. And I think that, you know, to me, that's an updated uh, version. But um, like I said, with, with a lot deeper roots and a lot more personal uh, relevance to people. Uh, and... I've read his stuff for years. I've, even when people said, you know, Whitley doesn't, you know, he's, he, who, you know, who knows if this is happening or not, you know, is he lying? It's like, that's, to me, that's not the point with Whitley Strieber. To me, I, th oh, one time George, I was on, you know, the one time I was on being interviewed by George Norrie, he said, who are your favorite researchers? He said, well, I said, well, Valet and Keel, certainly, um, you know, uh, Greg Little, who not too many people know about. Uh, he's still around. You got to have him on your show, actually, Mike. Yeah. If you could talk. Um, and I said, and Whitley Strieber, and he said, what, Whitley? He, as a researcher, I said, yes. Think of the best scientist you could think of to be looking at this. You might come up with a, you know, a Heineck or a James McDonald or a Jacques Vallée or um, uh, somebody like that. Or, um, uh, or maybe even Deep Prasad now. However, think of the best artist you could think of that is dealing with the subject. And I say, to me, it's Whitley. He's the best artist dealing with this right now. And people say, you know, do you think he's telling the truth? I said, that's not the point with me. That's like asking me if the Beatles were telling the truth. That's like asking me if Jackson Pollock was telling the truth. Like, that's not the point. The point is there's a message here that is not, it, it, it is a message of inspiration and a message that an artwork would give you, not something where you'd say um, this pill works because, you know, in, you know, nine out of 10 trials, it has been effective in doing whatever. That's not it. It's like, to me, looking at Whitley's work is like looking at a piece of art and everybody gets what they can out of that piece of artwork. 
and I'm coming from the place of being a, I mean, I worked as an illustrator and I did art and I studied film and stuff like that. So I feel like I'm pretty tapped into the, to the need for art and in good art or the best art, let's say, mm-hmm. will like the best mythology in a way will bypass the conscious mind and tap into that deeper hidden truth yeah. and, and maybe truth with in italics you know truth yeah. that will never answer yeah everybody goes to a concert and they all listen to the music they're all hearing something different but they're all hearing something that they like or that resonates with them and that's how i feel about uh whitley's stuff and some of the other literature even your stuff it's kind of like stop categorizing this as did this really happen was there a camera there or whatever that's not the point the point is to to get something out of that in the midst of these words and images and all that that it resonates with you for the same reason that somebody like stanley kubrick or david lynch will not describe to people what they're trying to do in their films because they know as soon as they do that it's going to collapse the waveform so to speak and people will say oh that's what that means and the richness of what's going on in there that they might not even be aware of will be lost you see what i mean i see exactly what you mean and i'll go right to the the parables of jesus i guess jesus and some of them and many of them he did kind of talk to his disciples and tell these stories about, you know, building a house on a strong foundation and whatnot. And then all the disciples were like, what is he talking about? You know, and then and some, sometimes he'll come back and say, well, the you know, the foundation of the house means this and such. But um, <laughs> Or it's like a Zen master, you know, Whitley's work to me is like a 30 year long koan, you know. <laughs> in a way. Yes, and that's that's like the, a koan is meant to, you know, you're meant to, a koan is not meant to be solved. Yeah, you know? exactly. You don't solve it. <laughs> exactly. I don't think you, you're not there to solve what, what's going on with Whitley. What you're there to do is to absorb it and see what meaning that might have for you. And if there's none, that's fine. Um, you know, I had a conversation, this goes back a few years now, I had a conversation with Richard Dolan and he asked me, he sort of asked me like, you know, what do you think of Whitley Strieber? So he asked me like, so he wanted my opinion. He said, what do you think of Whitley Strieber? I said, you know, recognize that he's a kind of divisive character in this field. And a lot of people have trouble taking him seriously or or, or dismissive of him. Yeah. And I said that, you know, the issue is that he is that he is such a good writer. So I've read a lot of first person UFO abduction books like a lot of them like a kind of ridiculous amount and and some of them are so i mean like uh, some of them are poorly mm-hmm. written right but they're written with a kind of passion but they're they're yeah, yeah yeah they're kind of tough to get through some of them but um so whitley writes this story but he writes it at a at a level like a way up there at a different level and so like like it's the problem i th- i think the problem that some people, a lot of people, I don't know, but the problem that some people, and, and, and Rich and I really agreed on this, is that he is simply too good of a writer. Like, his writing is so beautiful that it, at times, it'll, it'll distract the reader from from the... I can see how someone would say it, it sounds made up. The storytelling is too beautiful. Yeah. Now, now I, I, I think I'm saying this right you know rich kind of lamented that and said you know he's really one of our top shelf writers 
He really is. And and I and I and I recognize that's kind of a double-edged sword. It works against him at times. And 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 he's like way out at the far edge of of the continuum where he's he's struggling. Well, he's not struggling at all. He's clearly articulating the challenges that are all over this this mess of a subject. And it's it's almost like it's almost like the detractors simply can't keep up with him. And do not get me wrong. I think that taking cameras out, doing what the UAP expedition is doing with 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 Prasad, which isn't totally technologically scientific. There's other parts of it that aren't, which is great. Uh, Chris O'Brien's uh, San Luis Valley camera project, um, stuff that Doug, Douglas Trumbull's doing, I think still with his uh, data acquisition thing for UFOs. That stuff is quite important. Databases and all this are important, but not to the detriment of the right brain of the of, of what we're talking about here. They're, but they're, I think they're equally important. That we just have to find out a way where they can talk to each other. I agree. I agree. And that's actually the, that bridge. You know, I went to a UFO conference one time, and well, I've been to many UFO conferences, and I try to dress nice, and my hair is short and stuff like that, so I I can kind of talk to the to the guys with the mustaches who are looking at. Uh, of uh, you know government documents and you know mm-hmm. sending freedom of information act request or freedom of information act requests to the air force and such you know these guys are on one side of this this continuum i guess and i could kind of float over there and talk to those guys and then i could float over to the ladies in the flowy dresses with the with the big earrings and talk about consciousness and angel spirits and stuff like that and i felt really like a like a honeybee with all kinds of, you know, flowers to, well, that's a horrible analogy. Let me do something better. But I <laughs> <laughs> Point well taken. I think it's fine. I was about to say, that's kind of how I feel at these things. There's certain people I'm more drawn to. But the thing is that, you know, the only, there's certain things I absolutely just am not interested in. And instead of complaining about it, I just ignore it. I mean, I, why waste time? But um, there's certain things that I'm interested in, and I will talk to those people about that. Many of my friends are diametrically opposed to each other, and that makes me happy, at least in their ideas about the about the subject. Yeah. So what happened to me was I all of a sudden I had this little name tag on the first time I spoke about UFOs and owls. Like I had a little thing, and like, mm-hmm. it said speaker, and had my name on it. I was the guy who was going to talk about UFO abduction and owls, and I tell you what. I was, I recognized it right away as soon as I had that new name tag on. I was persona non grata to half the room, to the to the <laughs> nuts and bolts people. They didn't want anything to do with me. Yeah. And I took, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, being purposely sort of provocative in the way I present this. But, I know, and I that know. said, you know, a few of them did say, I had no idea what you were talking about. I did not get this at all. UFOs and owls didn't make any sense. So I snuck into your talk. And then, you know, and they said, actually, it was really good. I liked it. And, and I, you made a good point. And so I'm not saying these people are not reachable, but I'm saying that there is a gulf. There are two sides to this lore. And you, it, Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a giant. It's a biggest Rorschach plot ever. You know, well, reality is the Rorschach plot. But the, the, the study of UFOs, it's like it's so factionalized based on what people's view of reality is or whatever they, they're interested in. And, you know, to me, it's almost like, you know, I made a joke with some friends of mine. It's like two comic book people arguing over whether Batman can beat up Spider-Man or something. It's like we're basically talking about the same thing here. So, you know, I think the factionalism is actually 
um, it hurts things. It keeps it keeps that crosstalk from happening. So there's there's a, there's a lesson to be learned from um, some tolerance here, and being able to listen to somebody instead of waiting for your turn to talk and not listening to what they're saying. We have to take our second break. For free Dreamlanders, you're going to hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on the unseen, and we have my guest my friend, Greg Bishop, and we are talking about UFOs and all the messy stuff that comes along with them. You often quote uh, Kathleen Turner, the late abduction researcher. She wrote a beautiful book called Into the Fringe. Not beautiful, it's a pretty scary book, but a very well-written book. Oh, excuse me, Carla Turner. What did I call her? Kathleen. Kathleen Turner, okay. Kathleen Turner. Kathleen Turner was, she was the voice of Jessica Rabbit, yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> Okay, let me start all over again. That's okay. <laughs> you often quote, I might even leave this in. You often quote. I think you should. You often quote Carla Turner, the abduction researcher. And I think I'm doing the quote here, Justice. The truth is more likely going to be found in the anomalous details. Yeah. And why do you use that line? I've heard you use it many times. Because this field that whatever whatever interacts with us and i think there is something interacting with us that's not us it is not interacting with us in a way that is direct because if it was there'd be no mystery right so what i think it does in the myriad of ways that it affects people is that it affects each person very individually subjectively etc and that kind of stuff, to me, is is more important. That's what I think Carla meant about anomalous details, meaning the stuff that doesn't fit. Because this whole thing doesn't fit. I mean, it just doesn't fit with anything. It just it's it's the it's the trickster. It's it's um it's absurd. It's all these. Well, oh, here, give an example if you can, like of a story that would fit the absurdity. One of my favorites is a case from Poland. I think it was called a place called Emilchin, M- M- Poland, E-M-I-L-C-I-N. Um, I'll try and shorten it. This was in the 70s. It was uh, involved this old man that lived out in the country, didn't read papers, didn't watch TV, had no exposure to movies, anything like that. So front-loading and cultural cueing is out the door with this guy. He's driving his horse cart <laughs> along a road in Poland. And these two guys, these two short guys next to the road, like kind of wave him down and ask for a ride. They don't say anything. They just kind of indicate they want a ride. And out there, he said, you know, if somebody wanted a ride, I'm going the same direction. Yeah, hop on the hay cart. So they jump in the back and he says they start making these strange noises and their feet look like flippers and they kind of look oriental or, or um, they got funny colored skin. I don't know if it's green or gray or what. And at one point, they, they kind of indicate that um, they're at their destination. And he looks at this field and there's a thing that looks like a refrigerator hovering over the field. And at each corner of this refrigerator or this, it, it, actually, it more looks like a, a square um, um What's that? What are those uh, stainless steel trailers? What are those things called from the fifties? The airstream. It looks like an air. It looks like a squared-off airstream trailer, 
but it's not just hovering in the field. It's cut four screw things turning on the side, like like little screws, giant screws. What the hell are those things for? They take him into the field and they motion to him to get to follow him. A platform comes down from the, you know, through on these apparently on these ropes or something, comes down to the ground, he gets on the platform with them. He goes up and he says he walks into this thing with them and the door looks like a rolled up carpet. It doesn't look like any kind of a door. It just looks like some rolled up piece of fabric next to the door. In front of the door, there's a bunch of blackbirds, he said, that are struggling and looking like they're drugged or in some kind of distress, flopping around like crows. This sounds like a dream, doesn't it? They ask him to take off his clothes and then they they run some kind of device up and down him and then let him put his clothes back on. They tried to get him to eat something that looked like a, a icicle or a popsicle. He didn't want any. Don't eat the food. Yeah. Don't eat the food when you're in fairyland. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then they, you know, then they basically lose interest and say, hey, you can, you know, emotion to him to get on the get on the thing and go. So he goes and gets on the little platform. It takes him down to the ground and he just gets in his cart and he drives away. It's just some weird thing that happened to him. He's like, oh, my, he just like, he's not, oh, my God, I saw a UFO. And he comes back to the village and he tells people, he's like, hey, I had this weird thing happen. They're like, huh, what? So some people are vaguely aware of that kind of thing. But the, to me, the point is that is such an absurd thing to happen. He wasn't disturbed by it. He didn't have any trauma over it, apparently. But, you know, it's what was going on there. I mean, is, is, is that did he see what actually was there or did he see to me? This indicates he saw something that fits, you know, kind of what the narrative we think of as abductions. He'd never heard of such a thing. They didn't abduct him. They just said, hey, come on in. And he could have refused. And then I think there there was a story later that the some invest you know UFO investigators finally got wind of it and came out and looked at the looked at the area and I think they found some of those blackbirds um, feathers in the field um, and a bunch of little footprints around where he said this thing happened not just his footprints but other little footprints with him oh also um, other people in the town saw this square thing go floating over the town uh, uh, like a, a kid and somebody else saw it. So anyway, to me, that's just so absurd. And of course, people would say, well, you know, actually, that's a screen memory. And he actually had a real abduction. It's like, I don't think so. I think he had no idea what this should be. And his brain was just like, OK, well, that's what this is. And, you know, either while he was there or after the fact, he created a narrative that made sense to him. And I'm not I say that and people immediately say, oh, you said he made it up. I said, no, 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 no. I didn't say he made it up. What I'm saying is that whatever happened to him, it was couched in metaphors and memories and ways that he that made sense to him, though it was absurd. I mean, I mean, like I said, I said it was like a dream. Um, UFO experiences tend to be something that's describable. I mean, what else could you do? And for something to be describable, it has to be describable in our with our imagery and our metaphors and most importantly, our language. And so those things are going to determine what happens to somebody or how they remember it. Um, what actually happens to them, I'm not sure. I've never been in an abduction. And I'm sure people that have had the experience and people that study it and people that are, you know, somebody like Kathleen Marden is probably going to say that, you know, I'm being too vague about it. But I think that the 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 the, the field itself is I think we put so much meaning on it ourselves. 
in order to be able to handle it and talk about it. Um, that and even you know abductees and witnesses and all this, they are using the tools that are available to them to describe something that's basically indescribable. So I think we have to be aware of that. That's basically what that the uh, it, it, my co-creation essay in the uh, reframing the debate book was about. I've been thinking about this, and I'm still thinking about it. I agree. I mean, we bring to the table our own baggage. Yeah, just like with anything we bring to the table our own baggage, you know? Exactly. And that same story, if it, that story was told instead of, you know, a village in Poland in the 70s, if it was told in a village in Ireland 300 years ago, there would have been a rich lore already in place, and it probably would have been framed more as fairies or leprechauns. You know, they had that lore. Yeah, this is the old passport to Magonia yeah. idea, but yeah. So, I mean, they had, I mean, the, the, if you lived in a village in Ireland 300 years ago, you would have had a cultural contamination the same way that we have a cultural contamination from watching the X-Files here. Yeah. And I don't even know if it's a contamination. It's just the language and the, and the mental language that is available to us. And, and without that contamination, I think we have nothing. You know, it's like, what are you going to do? With, you know, there are people that have UFO experiences or other kind of strange experiences, and they forget them until years later because there's nothing you can't hang it on anything. Yes, or or you that you can't hang it on. Well, this is like that. Or that it could be that the, the you know, hmm? oftentimes it feels like. And I've talked to many people who said, "Oh, I just this all came rushing back." And I have a couple of examples of that in my own stuff where it just feels like one little trigger and whoop, this memory just slams back in place, and and that often feels staged. Yeah. Because it finds a hook to hook on somehow, or or and you know another possibility, which is that the the visitor, the visitor energy, let's say the visitors are orchestrating the time and the moment that this this needs to reemerge in someone's life. I can't prove that. Yeah, possibly. I can't either. <laughs> uh, Mac Tony's was so good, and I, this is a lesson I learned from him. He was so good at speculating. He was so good at speculating. He would say, now I'm going to speculate. And he would go riff and think about things verbally and just sort of extemporaneously speak about what may or may not have happened. And then he'd say, well, I'm done speculating. Mm -hmm. Like if you're going to speculate, it's like people are allowed to speculate and we're creative and we can come up with all kinds of things. And that makes scientists crazy. Yes. And uh, I knew Bud Hopkins and and he would have these meetings and he'd say, let's not speculate at all in this meeting. You know, the round meetings where everyone would come to his apartment and sit in a circle and, um, mm -hmm. and that we're not going to speculate at all. Let's just tell what happened to us and our memories. And they all would. And then everyone, all the. Yeah, but that's speculation. Well, no, what they're telling, if they, it's not speculating if they say, like, this is my direct memory. They're just repeating their direct memory. Oh, okay. Well, okay. But yeah. then they, then everyone would go to the bar afterwards, and, and then they would all speculate like crazy, which I think we're, we're, we have to do as humans. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you know what? I've, 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 sorry, I said that about Hopkins. No, I don't mean they're speculating, meaning it didn't happen to them. They're using the tools available to them to try and make sense of what happened to them. Now, if you want to call that speculation, fine. But yeah, it's like you said, it's more like describing directly what they think happened to them. But you, you have to realize that they're not describing what happened to them. They're describing their idea of what happened to them. Now, if you're talking about making bread or, or cleaning your car or whatever, 
that's really easy to describe. If you're talking about something you've never seen before that has come in the middle of the night and messed with your life and all that, to me, the only thing you can do is describe it in the metaphors available to us. And that's almost, to me, like speculation, but it's it's direct, you know. I don't I don't know if I'm explaining oh, yeah. this right. Yeah, I get it. You know, so um, uh, on Bill... It's it's direct speculation or realistic speculation or something. Yes. Like so the speculation you're talking about may be more involved with meaning and context. And it comes out in the language of the dream. I mean, that's my thought now is like, you know, as a as a researcher, people tell me these stories and I'm like, OK, I'll give you one example. This fellow, Mike, it's in my second book. Uh, he has an experience. He's driving home from work. He's crossing a bridge. And right after he crosses the bridge, this owl flies in front of this windshield and scares him. It's full daylight. And then he drives yeah. another half a mile. He looks to his left and off on the side of the road, hovering above like a sewage treatment plant. It's not very <laughs> so, is a copper colored flying saucer. And it's hovering there and it rises up into the clouds. He's caught in traffic and just has to get kind of drive along and he loses sight of it. The most important part of that story to me was the bridge. Right, so here's owls and UFOs mm. tied together. This is my bread and butter. This is all I care about in some ways. Owls, yes. UFOs, that's all I want. So he's got <laughs> he's got a perfect owl and UFO story. It happens at a bridge. Now, if you if you went to the dream analysis, yeah, this is this is the big liminal uh, thing that's a, a crazy. Yeah, right and so you say I had a dream where I just crossed a bridge and I saw an owl, and then I saw a UFO. So there's these archetypes: bridges, owls, UFOs. They're like they're steeped in this deeper meaning. This is what I'm sensing is emerging in this stuff. Yeah. This deeper meaning that we may never be able to articulate the same way we cannot articulate what does the archetype of the hero really mean, right? We can say it means Luke Skywalker. It's like, yes, it yeah. does, but still, what does it, what is it, how is it touching you on a, on a archetypal level? In your deepest consciousness, yeah, it, 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 yeah, it encompasses so many other things, and it's also the hero is an archetype in across cultures, and they're slightly different for each culture, maybe vastly different. Yeah, and so are the little aliens, and so are the little beings that you know take a ride on your ox cart, right? I mean, they're different yeah. in Ireland, and they're different in the Southwest, and they're different in in the Hudson River Valley. They're different in Argentina in 1978 when. Uh, uh, as a subject of that documentary, the witness of another world was uh, describing. Um, that doesn't sound like aliens either. It sounded, it sounded like giant robotic things. And, and you know what? In the, in, when I watched that, you know what rang out to me? He climbed a ladder. Mm. I've never, I've read a mm, thousand yeah. UFO accounts where people claim direct contact and abduction or whatever word you want to use. I don't know how many, I've never heard of anyone climbing a ladder. Maybe I have, but I'm just like, it's pretty rare. Maybe V.S. Boas, but I'm not, I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. So, so he climbed a ladder. Now there's an archetypal image, right? Talk about liminal. That's like a bridge, right? Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. got rungs on it. It goes up. You're ascending to a higher level. Yeah. That, I'm just riffing. I'm speculating. I'm doing the worst thing possible that a scientist, if any scientists are listening to this right now, their toes are curling in their shoes as I drone on and on. And, um, yeah, well, if, if mythology doesn't make any difference, if archetypes don't make any difference, if you don't think they're important, don't watch any more movies, don't read any more books, don't listen to any more music. Don't go to the church on Sunday. Don't go to church. If you don't think those things are relevant to the human experience, you're shutting out half or more of human experience.
So to me. Yeah. Yeah. So so we're confronted with a remarkably powerful human experience changes people's lives. That's that's witness of another world. The man had a transformative experience, changed him. Mm -hmm. I had an owl experience. It changed me. I've talked to a lot of people who've had UFO experiences, changed their lives. Yep. So we, Cosmic Art Project. Yes. Here, go speak about that. That's one of my questions here. Uh, I wrote something for UFO Mystic, the uh, blog site, uh, around 2008. What's that, 11 years ago? Uh, called Are UFOs a Cosmic Art Project? And it was speculation, right? Um, and what my speculation was, was, you know, I'll, I'll go to the crux of it. If you could affect somebody's life in the way that 30 seconds or a minute of a UFO sighting affects somebody's life that we know about, you know, you would be the most famous artist ever. I just showed you something that completely changed your idea of what reality is. <laughs> what could be more powerful than that? So what's going on there? Are, is, is something using, you know, our subconscious and our um, our way of looking at things to either convey a message or just to say, look, I'm here or to say, look, there's a there's a different way of looking at reality. And you think these things, you know, change people's lives. So the only other thing I can think of that touches people that deeply is art and music in a way that you cannot analyze directly so that that was my point like there, there there's a whole you know this this was written before the co-creation stuff i wrote and I, it direct it directly fed into it oh i got a thousand questions i want to ask you yeah <laughs> okay uh i hope i can keep it up for a thousand questions <laughs> so, so project beta you did a book mm -hmm. when did that book come out 2006, I think, five or six. 2006, okay. Wow, okay. So 15 years ago. <sighs> Long time. Yeah, so if that book came out, and now in that book you talk to a lot of, let's just call them secret keepers. Yep. And that, and much of your research involves your interactions with, I don't want, I'm mean, secret agents, I don't know what they're even the right term with, people who are keeping secrets. So they're feeding you little tidbits. Some of those tidbits might be misinformation, disinformation. But I sense that you have learned to navigate those waters, at least a little bit. Yeah. Okay. What's the book Project Beta about? Uh, it's about a UFO researcher that was um, led into something that basically made him uh, uh, have a nervous breakdown over a course of a few years. Uh, by elements of the Air Force, the NSA, CIA, whoever was working at this base in Albuquerque that he lived next to and was seeing strange lights. And uh, it was part of a counterintelligence operation and a, basically a, a, a way to uh, get uh, Russian agents to uh, reveal themselves and also to protect assets in Russia and also to protect our projects, United States military projects. Um, in the United States, this was one tiny little part of it. Um, but for the impact on ufology is, is is still being felt, and it created a lot of fear, paranoia, mistrust between UFO researchers, and especially with the government. And uh, 
you know, in some cases, uh, well-founded and deserved, and in other cases, you know, probably taken a little too far um, because there's a lot of drama queens in ufology. <laughs> and there's, yes, and I'm in a, and now let's fast forward to present day with your background, with your foundation and exactly that kind of those issues, which I, I am very, it's, it's a minefield. It's a house of, uh, it's a house of mirrors with a quicksand floor, right? Once you get into that world. Oh yeah. What, what are your ideas about, uh, Tom DeLong in this, to the stars Academy that's emerging presently? Wow. People keep asking about that and, you can have a short answer, but I mean, I'm just, I'm genuinely curious. Well, my shorter an answer is it's not the same thing. It might not even be similar. I don't think DeLong is being Benowitzed as a, you know, I don't think he's being drawn into something that will eventually drive him crazy. I, I, I don't think that's the case. What I do think is that at the very, on the very face of it, there's a group I described in you know, Project Beta, and, you know, everybody knew about this group called the Aviary, and people seemed to think it was this official government group that studied UFOs. It was not. It was a bunch of people interested in the subject. You know, John Alexander was in the group, Hal Putoff was in the group, that informally met with each other and tried to figure out what the, what the, what, what, you know, an answer, just like we're all trying to figure out, you know, what's going on here. But they thought they had better access to government sources of information. And they could utilize these things. And it didn't really quite work out for them because they didn't have access or the answers weren't there or whatever. So they moved on. And I think one of the latest incarnations of this is, is uh, Tom DeLonge and To the Stars, people that, you know, for whatever, you know, whatever they, else they may be doing, which I'm sure is plenty, um, I think they still have a genuine interest and don't know what the answer is. And they're still trying to find that answer, just like we all are. It's just that they're doing it through, you know, their lens, which is intelligence, former intelligence, um, aerospace industry, all that stuff. And then on top of that, obviously, as they've said straight out, they're trying to make money off it by finding something exploitable uh, in, in, in the UFO lore and UFO, you know, physical evidence of UFOs, maybe crash retrievals, whatever you want to call it. They're trying to find something exploitable so that they can either... Well, both advance human knowledge and two make make a decent amount of money by patenting some of these ideas that, that may either come from UFOs or are inspired by them. Um, and then on top of that, you know, they have the entertainment. They're trying to do TV shows. They they didn't make that unidentified show, but they were they were the subject of it. And I think they had a uh, consulting uh, heavy consulting hand in it. So, and I think that was um, uh, Tom DeLonge's thing right from the start that we're going to make this a pop culture thing. We're going to do books, we're going to do comic books, we're going to do T-shirts, we're going to do TV shows. Yeah. So if you know whether he was, he didn't do it himself, but I he probably was in a position to sort of fast track that in a, in the direction. Yeah, know. I mean, people may think I'm naive about it and all that, but I, you know, I kind of don't want to speculate because I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what the, I don't know what you know goes on in their office every day when they talk. I have no idea. I'm sure there's a way more going on there than they tell people. That's that's any company is like that <laughs> because they they have to keep some stuff close to their vest. Now, if we're lucky, something significant will happen and they'll tell us about it in some way. If we're not, it just, you know, it just becomes something where suddenly, you know, there's something that can teleport from one place to the other and, you know, you trace the <laughs> trace the 
some of the patents back and they go to people associated with them. I don't know. But if nothing else, however ever much people want to badmouth them or whatever, I am neither for nor against them. I'm just interested. I'm quite interested in what they're doing. It's, it's one of the weirdest and most significant and most interesting, actually, things that's happened since I've started looking at this stuff. And I'm sure most people listening. And on that level, it's interesting. You just have to pay attention. Don't get excited. Don't freak out. You know, don't take sides, but watch. Watch and see what happens. Yeah, that's that's my sense, too. Like, it's it's I'm interested and I want to pay attention. And if it is disinformation, um, you know, my understanding of disinformation is you got to hide. You're using real experiences and real events and such to to hide something. Right. So that, so if they're saying 10 things, you know, eight or nine of them might be true. And then one of them might be meant to lead us astray. And I don't know which is which. But... Yeah, I don't know either. That's, you know, that's the it's the title of the first chapter in the, in the collection of my stuff called um, It Defies Language. The very first chapter is that interaction I've had with those people. And the title of the chapter is you you play the game or you get nothing. So that means you've got to interact. You've got to listen. You've got to talk to people. And not worry about whether you're being fooled or not. People's like, I got to know the truth. I have to know if this is the truth or not. It's like, well, then you shouldn't be around it. Because if you can't reserve your judgment about what you're being told, about what you're seeing, um, about what you've been allowed to see, whatever it is, if you can't reserve judgment on that and not get excited and not get, you know, try to keep the emotion out of it so that you have a clear, clear view of what's going on, you shouldn't be messing with it. I just let every semester I lecture to a class called UFOs and culture. And during question and answer session, this is at, uh, at a, at a uh, school here in Southern California university. Um, there's a question and answer session afterwards. They show Mirage men, the, the, the thing about the basically, uh, project beta and beyond. Um, and the questions, you know, have gotten more interesting, especially since the TTSA Tom DeLonge stuff, because younger people are like, oh, you know, they know who he is. They know what's going on. They pay attention. So what they asked me, first question was, how do you know when you've gone too far and you've probably gone off the deep end? And I thought, I didn't really thought about that. I thought about it for a second. And I said, when you can't think of anything else except UFOs you've probably gone too far. And the other thing I said was, and I've seen this happen to friends of mine, the UFO subject, if you've got a loose thread on you somewhere, it will grab that thread and just unravel you as fast as it can if you're not careful. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a subject for people that, are, that uh, have some other problems in their life. Like the occult. Uh, Israel Rigardi, who was a who was a, a, a secretary for Aleister Crowley, and you know, uh, uh, popularized the Golden Dawn and and Crowley's uh, occultism. He said, if you're going to get into this, into the occult, you should probably go through a heavy uh, session, few sessions of psychotherapy to make sure that you're actually ready for this, and you're not doing this because you think you can get one up on people or. Or as I say, when do you get to smite? <laughs> if you've got, if your ego is such that it gets it gets tickled by the UFO subject, the UFO subject is going to pull that string so hard that you won't know what happened, and you're going to turn into a you know 
your your senses will leave you and you'll either become a person with a strange cult following you or you'll just be somebody that just sound to most people sounds completely crazy people out that that don't don't agree with you so yeah it's it's the the ufo subject is just it's it's crazy inducing and so you have to kind of be ready to be on those stormy seas and be okay with it i have been on those stormy seas and and that's I feel much more grounded now, but there was a chapter in my life where exactly that thread got pulled, and I me too. I lost. I lost my. I mean, I I've say this over and over again. This, and I'm not exaggerating. I spent a, between about 2006 and 2010, spent every waking hour wondering if I had gone insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it and it calm and the way it calmed down, as silly as it sounds, I think I got bored of it. Like being so frazzled. Me too. <laughs> Do you know who Paul Krasner is? He used to put out a magazine called The Realist. He died recently. He was one of the yippies in the 1960s. He was in The Weatherman and all that. Mm-hmm. I was talking to him once, and I think I put this in Project Beta. And I said, he was talking to me about when he was researching the Kennedy assassination. He thought people were following him. He was paranoid. Everything was... And I went through this too, not with the Kennedy assassination, with the UFO stuff. And I said, well, well, how did you stop? What what stopped it for you? And he said, I got tired of it. I got tired of feeling scared all the time. And that's exactly what happened to me, Mike. And that sounds like what's happened to you. We all went through it in different ways, but it's like, God, I'm going to, if I keep on this way, I'm going to be a babbling idiot and I don't want to do that. So why don't I just back off? You know what I did actually? I got I I went into this is it was. You know I was it was a collision of two things. These owls, which are are a symbol, a symbol was interfering with my life. The owl is an archetypal symbol, mm-hmm. and I went into the woods one day. This would have been in two thousand nine, ten years ago, mm-hmm. and I and I literally spoke aloud. I hiked this little trail and found this pleasant little spot in the woods, and I said, "This is not working. Mm. It's not working. You're trying to get my attention. It's not working. It's too much." You gotta back off, and and I said I will not pay attention. I was seeing so many owls at that point; it was absurd. I said <laughs> I will not pay attention to owls unless they cross my path. An owl like over on the fence post over there, uh, uh-uh, uh, that doesn't count. You know, because that's what I was seeing. I'd ride my bike, and oh my god, there's an owl on the fence post. There's an owl up in that tree. There's like, you know, and it was they they will not count. I will not pay attention to an owl unless it crosses my path. Mm-hmm. And a couple days later. I was riding my bike down the main street of the town, and I saw this owl in a tree on the right side of the road, and I was I rode my bike along. It swooped down low and passed in front of me. I probably couldn't touch it with my hand, but it was pretty close. Mm-hmm. And then it, it landed in a pine tree on the other side of the road. So I felt like I, I asked a question. I was asking, yeah. can you do this for me? And it felt like it happened. They did it. Now, who that they may be is, is a slippery slope. I can't answer that. But I asked a question. I had a request. My request was granted. And it chilled me out so much. Yeah. Self-therapy. And who knows, you know, maybe it was just a a matter of perspective for you. Um, Just to change your own perspective. I told, that's another thing. One of the, uh, when I was talking to those kids at the uh, uh, college students, kids, what I explained to these uh, kids when they asked me about being paranoid, and, you know, I said I was tired of it. The funny thing was, I was having everything I got from Carla Turner was opened or mutilated or lost. 
and also a, a cattle mutilation researcher, uh, Peter Jordan, who got out of it a long time ago, right in the middle of when I was talking to him about it, too. But what I said to myself was, uh, I'm tired of being paranoid about this. I'm just going to stop it. You know, cold turkey almost. I'm going to stop being paranoid about everything, stop noticing things that, that um, upset me. The weird thing was when I made that decision, the mail tampering stopped. Is that a coincidence? Because the mail tampering wasn't something I was imagining. Those are, it's like a mutilation. The mail was mutilated. I got, I got these notes saying, oh, sorry, our, you know, our machines like messed up this envelope. And the envelopes were open. Some of them obviously opened and taped back. But it's when I made the decision to stop being afraid, either by coincidence or I don't, coincidence is a slippery word, but the physical manifestation of my paranoia stopped when I decided to stop being paranoid. <laughs> so what is that? There's the, you know, I'm going back into co-creation again. Yeah, the truth is more likely to lie in the anomalous details. And this <laughs> yeah. odd stuff, this yeah. really weird stuff. I mean, I'm drawn to it. Like, it floats my boat. Me too. Man, the weirder and the more dreamlike and the more symbolic and the more mythic. And and I say this straight up all the time. I did not choose the owls. The owls chose me. And I feel like I am grateful mm -hmm. that I didn't get, you know, I'm grateful that the thread that I have been pulling on has been just so full of this the owl stories have yeah a little you're you're pulling up this this string and pearls are coming out yes and and also that that the that the experiences that people are sharing some of them are very scary i have i have a handful of like really downer experiences mm -hmm. that are connected to owls but very few most of them are people are challenged people people are really challenged but they but they have a kind of a benevolence to them and i am so grateful and i'm projecting big time in saying that i recognize that i'm fully aware of that but it's been a remarkable journey these last 10 years. Hey, Greg, how do people get a hold of you? Um, probably best through, I guess, Facebook or commenting on my at Radio Misterioso, which is my interview show, which I've been doing since 1997 or 8 under different names. <laughs> 21 years. Yeah, yeah. I, I started out um, on a pirate radio station in L.A., FM Pirate Radio. Eventually, the FCC busted us and shut down the station. But I started interviewing people then, and it was called Hungry Ghost then, which is a Buddhist term. Um, and uh, somewhere around 2006 or something like that, I started, I guess, interviewing people in earnest, not just playing music, but I would call up and, you know, actually conduct interviews with people and so you know i said scott corrales i talked to very early on who some people know uh, mike marinacci who was one of the co-authors of weird california which was another book i was involved in he wrote a book called mysterious california um i think i had uh i had ira einhorn once on my show the the unicorn uh, killer guy but yeah, and, and since then, I've probably interviewed, I don't know, three or 400 people. And some of it's in the archive on the site if you just start going down the list. But if you want to get uh, in touch with me, just uh, comment on the sidebar there or um, message me on Facebook or whatever. And I will, I'll, I'll, if, <laughs> if I see it, and if I don't answer right away, I, I apologize. But uh, yeah, the best way is probably either through face, the Facebook group for Radio Mysterioso or 
the radio show page itself, R-A-D-I-O-M-I-S-T-E-R-I-O-S-O.com. It's spelled like uh, Spanish. Good, and I'll put a link to that in the uh, show notes. Yeah, I've met so many great people through this, and I'm sure you have too, Mike. It's just some of my best friends have come through just studying this weird stuff. I mean, we realize we're of the same strife. We both like anything that's extremely strange, and everything and all the wonderful things flow from that. You know, and when Whitley uh, asked me to do this show, this podcast, my first thought was like, ooh, I get a chance to talk to all my friends. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. About that's a third of the people way, I so. talk to on my show are just friends of mine, and we're just hashing stuff out and having fun, you know, or more importantly, what the guest is into. Deep Prasad, I had him on. The first thing I asked him was like, what the hell is quantum computing and how does it work? And I didn't ask him that because I was trying to get on his good side. I asked him because I truly wanted to hear from somebody that was in that industry and knew what it was, how it worked. And he gave me a great explanation, and we went on from there. And that's what I did with you. This I, I asked, you know, like, what's up with the UFOs? The last... <laughs> we didn't solve anything. There's uh, nothing to solve. It is a. I stopped thinking of this as solving. I think of it now as an individual understanding. If that individual understanding meshes with other people's individual understandings, then that's maybe sort of what you might call an answer. And that may be the best we get in the short term. Who knows what the future will bring? Greg, it's been a delight. Definitely. Thank you so much. I had, I had, not that I didn't think I was going to have fun, but this turned out to be like way more fun than even I thought it would be. <laughs> Thank you. That's what I wanted. That's Thank what you. that was what I was hoping for, and hopefully the audience picks up on that too. Hope so. Thanks, Wayne. You're very welcome. This is Mike, and I am chiming in after the editing. I would like to thank Greg for his time and energy, and I need to say it was my sincere honor to talk with him and have a few laughs. Here's to a new year, and hopefully conversations like these will bring hope and strength to our troubled world. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now. <laughs>